Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Happy end of summer and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. We're almost a year away from election 2020. We're still a year away from election 2022, but already the American political pot is boiling. A majority of Republicans still refuse to admit that Donald Trump actually lost the last election. And most of those same people also refuse to accept COVID-19 as a serious threat and therefore refuse to get vaccinated. Republicans are also split on what to do about Afghan refugees. They attacked Joe Biden for not getting enough of them out of Afghanistan fast enough. Yet they also attacked Biden for agreeing to let so many of them into the United States. While Democrats also experience a little infighting over how long to stay in Afghanistan and how much money to spend on infrastructure, hard or soft infrastructure. It's hard to keep track of all of these countercurrents, and it would be impossible without the insights of great reporters like Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Believe me, I read every word he writes. I'm a big fan because I believe when it comes to politics, he's got the best take on where we are today, how we got here, and where we're heading tomorrow. Philip Bump, good to talk to you. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you very much. Well, uh, there's so much going on in American politics today we could talk about forever. But let's start with something which fascinates me and you've been writing a lot about. How did a healthcare crisis, a serious national healthcare crisis, maybe the most serious ever, become such outright political warfare? It's a complicated question. I think this is one of those questions that will probably be best answered by some 400-page book in the year 2030, right? I mean, well, we're sort of going to have to wait and see what all of the different details of it are. Right. Uh, but I, I think that we can point to one pretty obvious cause here, which is that this pandemic happened to emerge in the middle of what was an election year uh, for a president who was very, very concerned about uh, winning a second term in office and as such made a series of decisions uh, which were really uh, focused on downplaying the threat that was posed by the pandemic uh, promising that it would all go away, that there were miracle cures right around the corner, uh, assuring everyone that the economy could very quickly get back to normal and therefore that you know, America's economic strength could return very quickly. Uh, and when faced with internal dissent uh, from people like the country's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, uh, decided to cast uh, that, those dissenting voices as somehow aberrant or incorrect instead of actually embracing the recommendations and warnings that they were offering. And I think all of that combined, uh, you know, combined with whatever the motivation was for, for sort of passing on, on mm -hmm. mask wearing, which may also have been related to trying to downplay the, the pandemic, all of that combined really baked in a sense of partisanship here from probably May, March or April of 2020 uh, that obviously lingers. Right. It's sort of assumed uh, if you're wearing a mask, you're a Democrat, right? Or if you're practicing social distancing, you're a Democrat, and if you 
uh, don't have one. I just came from a supermarket and almost everybody in there was masked, but there were a few who were not, you know, and you almost assume they have to be Trumpers. And obviously, it depends on where you are to some extent. And, and I think there is still some lingering, you know, sense among people who are fully vaccinated uh, that they can go and do those things without masks. So, you know, that is obviously mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're casting, you're, you're painting with a wide brush there intentionally. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we've seen polling that suggests repeatedly that not only are people who are uh, opposed to mandates about mask wearing or even say they regularly wear masks, not only do they tend to be Republicans, but they also tend to be people who are not as worried about the pandemic. Uh, and who don't intend to get vaccinated against the, the coronavirus. Uh, you know, those things all overlap. It's just broadly a lack of concern about the pandemic and about the virus itself. And that happens to overlap pretty significantly with, with being a Republican. And as you have pointed out, uh, very graphically and statistically, uh, there's a direct correlation, right, between red states and the severity of the disease, particularly with the new Delta variant, in terms of the number of red states, which are among those reporting the highest number of new cases, the highest number of new hospitalizations, and the highest number of deaths. Shouldn't somebody be able to connect those dots? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's sort of like presenting a kid uh, a, a connect the dots that's already been filled out. Like, you don't even have to connect the dots, right? You can yeah. already see the image for what it is, uh, you know, to extend the analogy there. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is... Uh, there are a couple of things happened here. During the spring, there were a couple of governors, uh, Christy Noem, South Dakota, Ron DeSantis in Florida, Greg Abbott in Texas, who decided, uh, seemed to have made the calculus that they could both remove mask mandates because the uh, situation was improving pretty dramatically and also make it a political stand. You know, we're anti-mask mandates. We're never going to bring these things back. Ron DeSantis, as of a couple of weeks ago, may still be is actually selling merchandise on his website, you know, that is mocking Anthony Fauci's recommendations. Then all of a sudden, the Delta variant emerges. Mm -hmm. And these states, as you mentioned, there is a, a very strong and obvious correlation between the, the uptake of vaccines in the state and how it voted last year. I mean, not only is it that red states are less likely to have a lot of people vaccinated, but the more red it is, the fewer people are, are vaccinated. Uh, and so those places really got slammed when Delta emerged. Uh, you know, that's there are a lot of factors at play here, not only vaccination, including, for example, policies like, you know, sort of the lazy fair approach to the virus that as we're seeing in Florida. Uh, but that correlates. And so I, I actually looked at the numbers yesterday. And right now, the rates, the, the, the population adjusted rate in red states as compared to blue states is twice as bad for cases and three times as bad for deaths. Uh, mm. I, and, you know, those are that doesn't need to be the the case. I mean, this is this is there. There's something different happening in those states, and it's impossible not to say that it must somehow be related to this 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 uh, partisanship. These numbers, which I quote, I trust implicitly because they come from one of your recent columns, that eight out of ten states that have the most new cases uh, voted for Trump. Nine out of ten of the states that have the most new hospitalization cases. Uh, are red states. Eight out of 10 that have the most deaths are voted are red states, right? I mean, right. can't deny that evidence. I mean, there's, so there's a real connection between believing the big lie, well, I guess voting for Trump, believing the big lie and not getting vaccinated. Yeah, that's an actual, that, that's an interesting overlap too. So one of the things that we see is there are actually way more Republicans who, who believe that the election was stolen incorrectly than there are that say they aren't going to get vaccinated. But essentially, all of the ones who say they aren't mm. going to get vaccinated are people who actually also believe in the big law. And I actually went back and looked. 
you know, there's sort of the, this group of conspiracy theories that's included in the, that includes those two. And it's, you know, something like 12% of Republicans broadly that, that adhere to this wide range of, of conspiracy theories, including both of those. But yeah, those two alone, there's, you know, a, a substantial chunk of the Republican Party, which believes both of those things, obviously both detrimental to the country in different ways. Could Donald Trump uh, have made a difference, have helped if he were uh, actively, aggressively urging people? After all, he should get I would give him some credit for the speedy development of the vaccine, right? Could yeah. he have made a difference by going out there and saying, hey, we got this vaccine, now go out and you can get it? This is, this is a fascinating question. It really is because, you know, speaking of things that will end up in you know, having books written about them, right. um, it's really hard to say. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, we saw this rally last weekend, for example, in Alabama where Donald Trump mm -hmm. came out and, you know, he's desperate to get credit for the vaccine, which he thinks can be viewed as the salvation of the entire pandemic. He really, really, really wants that credit. But at the same time, he, he doesn't want to help Joe Biden <laughs> by having coronavirus cases go down with, you know, as he sort of flirts with the idea yeah. of running in 2024. But at the same time, he spent so much effort. I mean, everything about his election in 2016, much less 2020, was predicated on the idea that he stood against the elites in Washington. And the elites in Washington are right now saying, everyone go get vaccinated for God's sake, save your own lives. And he recognizes mm -hmm. that because the elites are saying that, his base is going to reject it. And again, he spent all of last year inculcating that sense by disparaging Fauci and you know, bad-mouthing the CDC and so on and so forth, hiring Scott Atlas uh, to sort of do that from the inside. And so now he's in this position where he really, really wants people to get vaccinated. And so he says that in Alabama and people boo him. And then he sort of shrugs and says, oh, no, you know, but you got to have your freedoms <laughs> as a stop to this, you know, this line of thinking. And so it's, it's bizarre. I, but again, if he had come out in January and said, I just got vaccinated, everyone should do it. Yeah. I think you still would have seen this strain of people be like, nah, I'm not going to do it. Because mm. that's what the doctors, you know, that's what the CDC says, yada, yada, yada. And because some people are just honestly a little afraid of it and that they use that as cover. It's almost like the tail wagging the dog, right? The base is demanding that they go in this direction. And even if Donald Trump says, well, maybe you ought to get back, then they boo him, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's broadly good nature. But, I mean, this goes yeah. to, uh, you know, the, the, this broader idea of how, and I wrote about this this week or last week, but that, that from the time of the Tea Party, so pre-Tea Party, sort of the Republican, Republican establishment would set the direction and, you know, the base is sort of expected to go along with it. Yeah, and right. Barack Obama emerges and the Tea Party says, hey, we're mad about these things. And so they try and corral the Tea Party and point them in the direction they want. Right. So that's them trying to sort of co-opt the base. Then Donald Trump emerges in 2015. And Trump's strategy is, hey, you know what, base, you're totally right. And the reason he won, I'm convinced of this, is because he basically parroted what was being said in conservative media back to a base which was hearing that in conservative media. And they said, hey, this guy's a truth teller, whereas all the Republicans who are established elected officials weren't going to say those things because obviously you don't say those things yeah. as a self-respecting elected official. So basically, Donald Trump empowers the base to be the ones driving the GOP formally. He then eviscerates the establishment as president in order to retain power for himself. And now it's in a position where not only is it that it's the tail wagging the dog, but the dog is all but vanished. It's just this tail floating in the ether wagging itself. <laughs> you mentioned already one of the key players in all of this, of course, who has decided, you know, he's hooked his wagon to Donald Trump's star is, uh, particularly now we're talking on the COVID issue as well as others, is Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. uh, of Florida. Uh, I mean, he is, um, you've got Florida, which is certainly one of the leading states in terms of new cases, new hospitalizations, new deaths. And DeSantis is just 
right? Digging in his heels and refusing to do anything about it. You've got, I think, uh, I looked at the numbers yesterday, the day before, 15 to 20 percent of all the new cases and deaths during, the, during this new surge have been in Florida, which obviously is substantial. Florida, not that much of, of the country. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this goes back to the, the bet that I think he made in the spring, that he could like, all of a sudden he could be a real COVID hawk on this stuff because the pandemic was fading, and then all of a sudden it wasn't fading. And so if you're in his shoes, you've got an eye toward 2022, your re-election, but really toward 2024 and appealing to the Republican base, you have to make a decision. Do you backtrack on saying that mask mandates are bad and evil and Fauci is a dope? Or do you or do you keep moving forward with that and come up with another way to try and curtail the, the uh, pandemic? You know, the third option, of course, is just mm -hmm. to let it run rampant, which he has done to some extent. And so he sort of came up with this strategy of, hey, what if we just have all these therapeutics and make things like Regeneron and these, you know, um, uh, these, these, whatever the mono, monobody anti, you know, anti, the monoclonal antibodies. I'm not a doctor by profession, obviously. Uh, but so he makes these drugs available to people, and it's you know, it, it's it's sort of an inverse of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's you know, it is. Hey, don't worry about prevention because we'll cure you on the back end. Of course, setting aside all the obvious risks that that are, are associated with that, including now we're seeing these long lines of people trying to get this treatment. Uh, but that's what he's come up with because it means he doesn't have to go back and rescind on his uh, his promise that he wasn't going to reimpose these mask mandates because, again, he wants to make sure Republicans don't get mad at him. Uh, and at the same time, he, he tends to uh, change the subject, or change the focus at least, to Joe Biden, right? We're not going to let Joe Biden dictate what we do in Florida, right, or dictate right. what Floridians do. Uh, so using it again with his eye on 2024 uh, of attacking Joe Biden rather than dealing with the problem at home. Yeah, so, but the, 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 the really bizarre thing about that is Quinnipiac University came out with a poll this week that essentially shows that DeSantis overall, is his job approval is substantially better than Joe Biden's. But on COVID, it's the same. So he is not seen in Florida as doing a better job than Biden on the pandemic. And yet he thinks this is his ticket to success in 2024. Well, I was going to ask you about that, whether, whether this plays, A, whether this plays in Florida uh, and whether this plays outside of Florida. I mean, I, I mean, it's it clearly plays outside of Florida in the context of the Republican primary, right? You know, obviously that's step one is his winning the Republican primary. And he may, I mean, he has run so long as an accolade of Donald Trump's. Donald Trump's strategy in 2016, 2020 was maximize turnout from the base and then hope that's enough to actually overwhelm turnout for the opposition. Uh, you know, that worked for uh, it worked for Trump in 2016. It worked to some extent for DeSantis when he first was elected by the skin of his teeth in 2018 uh, as governor of Florida. And that may be his play, that in 2024, he hopes Donald Trump doesn't run. He hopes that the GOP base stands alongside of him, and he hopes he can then amp them up enough to actually win the White House. That right. may be his play. Uh, does it work broadly? You know, if you ask an average independent voter in the middle of, you know, just to pick a stereotypical Place, Peoria, Illinois, uh, you know, how they feel about Ron DeSantis. Does that, is that compelling? I don't know. And I think part of it depends on, you know, how much longer does Florida keep seeing 1,000 deaths a day from COVID? Right. And just before we, uh, we spoke here on the podcast, of course, a judge in Florida uh, said that uh, schools did have a right to require a mass uh, mandate uh, for incoming students and that Ron DeSantis did not have the right to ban school districts from doing so. Um, which I guess sets him back a bit, but probably will not uh, prompt him to change directions. 
I mean, honestly, I think it's the best case scenario for Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, what it means is, A, that there will be actual preventative measures in place in schools where we've seen a lot of the new virus spread. Yep. B, he gets to rail against the judiciary, right? And C, he doesn't have to rescind his own mask mandate, right? So it's sort yeah, of like, so. you know, I mean, what else could he ask for? You know, it's likely the pandemic will get better and he gets to blame someone else for it. Win-win. So the judge, uh, the judge, in effect, uh, let him off the hook, right? You're saying. It's an in-kind contribution to his 2024 campaign. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other characters around Donald Trump. A judge in Michigan has said that not only did I throw Sidney Powell's lawsuit accusing Michigan election officials of using these rigged voting machines that were designed in Venezuela to change votes, uh, not only did I throw that lawsuit out, but I think that uh, there should be sanctions fines against Sidney Powell and her colleagues, and uh, they should be referred back to their state bar for possible disbarment. Add to that, Rudy Giuliani's being disbarred right. in New York. <laughs> Not a good day for Trump lawyers or for the cause, I guess. Well, it's certainly a good day for justice, right? I mean, the, 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 I, the thing about that statement, uh, you know, the decision from the judge, is that it was not only about the fact that these people came with this, this specious claims that they were absolutely and fundamentally unable to prove. And if you actually read it, they, the judge walks through all of these things were known to be false before the lawsuit was actually filed, as, yeah. as, as, as indicated. But it really is. It's very pointed in saying this is an attempt to subvert democracy using the judicial system. She minces no words in that regard. And it's clear that she is not only frustrated from the standpoint of a judge having to deal with a frivolous lawsuit from bad lawyers, she is, she is frustrated as a citizen of the United States who is saying, you are trying to hurt our country by doing this thing. And as such, you should face some sort of reprimand. That, I think, is the significant part of, of what, that, uh, what that ruling says. And I think it's obviously entirely correct. Yeah. I mean, she said the, the, the uh, goal here, the real goal, was to undermine faith in the democratic process, right. which... Uh, right. Again, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> which is which has been the playbook since you know midnight on November third. Philip Bump, national correspondent for the Washington Post, is our guest today. We're covering politics in general, uh, lots of different uh, aspects of it here uh, on the Bill Press Pod, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. Then we'll come back, continue our conversation, and talk about some other characters running around, like um, maybe Mike Lindell. Uh, how about J.D. Vance? And uh, how are Democrats? holding together, or are they? We'll be right back with Philip Bump. And today's podcast with Philip Bump brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW, over half a million strong under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. Good men and women of the UFCW, they're the ones that serve us in our great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's and all the rest. Our big grocery stores, uh, Stop and Shop, and uh, you you got it, you name it, <laughs> Safeway, you're there with the UFCW. Our great chemical plants and cannabis plants as well. Uh, cannabis, maybe factories, we should say, not just the plants. Uh, all taken care of by the men and women of the UFCW. We salute them for their good work building America. We salute them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks to uh, Philip Bump from the Washington Post for joining us as well. Uh, Phil, we mentioned Sidney Powell. Mike Lindell has also uh, been out there with his wacko theories uh, about the fraud in the election, which he promised to prove, held a big symposium where he was going to show the world that it was China was the villain here. Uh, how'd that go? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a setup. I don't even know how to finish. Uh, it went poorly. It went, it went about as poorly as you can imagine. You know, and I think, you know, it's the way, the best way to look at this, I think, and, and I'm not sure the extent to which this is a fair depiction of what's actually happening, but I think the best way to look at this is that Michael Lindell himself is getting swindled, uh, that he fervently wants Donald Trump to have won, that he has a lot of money in his disposal, and there are people who put those two things together to figure out this was a tap that they could turn on, right? And yeah. I think he had a lot of people who came up to him and said, hey, we can prove this thing, pay us you know, X million dollars, and we will. And I, you know, he buys into the con, he's very invested in it. And so one of the things that happened in the symposium, for example, is the person who purportedly captured all this internet traffic, which shows that China stole the election or whatever, which, which you know, independent of anything else, has never even come close to being proven. It's, it's a little bit like saying, you know, we have found all these envelopes in a mailbox, which contain information about how the election was stolen, and then they show you a giant stack of envelopes. And it's like, well, okay, A, I don't know where those envelopes came from, B, I have no idea what's inside of them, so what are you even talking about, right? So this guy makes his claim, Lindell pays him money to, to, to go along with it, and then he promises, at the symposium, I'll show you what's inside the envelopes. And then all of a sudden, the guy's like, oh, I'm super sick, and I can't come. Right? And so they share all these little pieces of information, which are, you know, imagine now that you're in a recycling plant and you see some, you know, sort of pay, newspaper pulp. That's what they presented to us. And we're like, OK, so what you're saying, these used to be envelopes and we're supposed to make sense. Like that is this. This analogy is actually pretty good at, at covering one half of what Lindell offered. The other half of this is just this absolutely idiotic statistical analysis done by this guy named Dr. Frank, uh, who was a math teacher until he got fired from his job or left his job because of all these conspiracy theories, but which is obviously and quickly debunked, not even going to get into it, but there's nothing to it, just nothing to it. But Michael Dell is so invested in this and spent so much money and so much time, and he's trusted all these people to whom he's paid this money. And it's just, I mean, honestly, it's a little bit sad because he's he's either getting hustled or he is really, really good at seeming pathetic as he's hustling everyone else. But he's still selling a lot of pillows. 
right? So well, uh, fewer than he used to. Because he got kicked out all you know, like Bed Bath and Beyond doesn't take him anymore. Like he's not airing ads on Fox News. So yeah, I mean, it's it's hurting the bottom line too. Uh, I enjoyed uh, your recent piece about uh, JD Vance. I, I tell you, I particularly enjoyed it because uh, I'm the only person I know who hated Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, you know, it was such a bestseller for so long, and I kept saying. This is bullshit, right? I mean, I grew up in a small rural town too. This is not real. Uh, so I, I was waiting for the uh, J.D. Vance eulogy to follow the hillbilly elegy. Um, maybe we're there, but he certainly has turned out to be not the person as a candidate we thought he was as a writer. Well, I, I think very much to the point, he is certainly not the person as a candidate that he presented himself as in a political sense in 2016, right? So in 2016, yeah. he said, actually, I know what's really happening with the white working class in the Midwest. Donald Trump's got it wrong. He's playing xenophobia. He's playing the racism in a way that I find reprehensible. I can never vote for him. I'm voting for Evan McMullen. All of a sudden, Donald Trump wins. Donald Trump wins. J.D. Vance wants to run for Senate. J.D. Vance said, and he said this specifically at the Time Magazine's Molly Ball, that basically he decided he needed to get on the program. And now he is not only on the program, he's on Tucker Carlson's program. He's on the, you know, white replacement theory style program. Uh, and, you know, this week he took advantage of the, uh, the what's going on in Afghanistan to, you know, to disparage immigrants from Afghanistan. I mean, it's just like it was just explicitly what he criticized Trump for doing in 2016. And it just it's extremely revealing about his ambitions. Right. On the on the Afghan ref refugees, just to, to, to dwell on it for a minute. I mean, this is uh, an issue that has suddenly split the Republican Party, right? I mean, they, they're condemning Biden for not getting enough uh, refugees out fast enough, but they're also condemning him because he wants a lot of them to come here, and they don't, right? Well, they just have, they have a, they have a go-to middle ground, which is like, we want them all to leave Afghanistan and then go somewhere else where they are, quote, properly vetted. And of course, the vetting process is just so cumbersome and onerous that, you know, it basically means that people don't actually end up. That's that's sort of the. I mean, that's been the line for quite some time on on these sorts of issues. Is that where the American people are? That's a great question. You know, I mean, I think that uh, broadly speaking, Americans have for a long time supported more immigration generally, not just refugees from the Middle East, but you know, even just across the border from, from Mexico, have supported more immigration over the course of the Trump presidency. We actually saw support for more immigration increase. Uh, you know, and I think there's uh, all sorts of indications now uh, that with that there's a significant threat to American population growth without immigration uh, that I think really sort of lights a fire under this debate. We'll, we'll see this coming up more. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the American public, I think, is very sympathetic, uh, particularly to these African refugees, particularly uh, to the folks that actually served with American forces during the war. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's not really reflected very well in, in the current debate. That's my read as well. From what I've seen, Americans say, these are people, you know, for years now who have put their own lives on the line. Uh, as translators or counselors or you know drivers or kind of whatever, uh, basically working for us, right? Uh, and we owe them right. just out of uh, uh, out of fairness. So for all the uh, division and disunity and lack of clear direction, the Republican Party. So the Democrats have a uh, uh, at least with Kamala Harris uh, control of the Senate, fifty plus one, and with Nancy Pelosi a slim margin, but still control of the House of Representatives. Do you think they would be all, all on the same page on, the, on all the issues? Uh, but not exactly. 
Right, Philip? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think I would ever say that I would expect any group of more than two politicians <laughs> to be on the same page. Good point. Uh, you know, I mean, especially Good when point. there are all sorts of cameras and, and microphones around. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, this this fascinating dynamic. I mean, there was all this attention being paid at the beginning of the year to the idea that the Democrats might be held hostage by the extreme wing of their party. You know, the squad, the, the far left progressives, uh, yeah. in the same way that the House Freedom Caucus held the Republicans uh, hostage to some extent in 2017. There was all this prediction like, oh, these people are going to be able to, because these margins are so narrow, they're going to be able to, to, to demand what they want of, of Pelosi. But it turns out that the first actual rebellion came from the party's right flank, just as uh, the rebellion against Republicans came from the right flank. And I think it's fascinating in part because of what it says about progressive politics versus moderate politics in the Democratic Party. And fundamentally, if you are a progressive Democrat, what you are advocating for often is more government help, right? And so if the choice is on a bill about how much, the, you know, what the government's going to do, they're not, you know, I don't believe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually wants to spike billions of dollars of spending. You know, it's not credible that she's going to say, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to oppose any spending at all on this until I get my way. Whereas moderate Democrats and, of course, conservative Republicans are very happy to have those things, you know, sort of mm -hmm. all by the wayside, because that's sort of their preferred outcome in many cases anyway. And so I think that's one of the reasons, uh, in addition, of course, to just to rank politics, why that's where this, this opposition came from. Right. And uh, one point I was going to make, but you've, you've actually made it yourself, is that when you're talking about Democrats in the House, uh, the conservatives are really middle of the roaders, right? Right. Uh, the moderate, the moderate. Well, there ended up being ten of them, I believe. That's right. They're not. They're not the Freedom Caucus, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are. They are still they're, to the left ideologically, ideologically yeah. than any Republican. Right. I think they call themselves the uh, the Blue Dog uh, right. Democrats. But it's funny. I had lunch the other day with a good liberal friend of mine, a lobbyist, who said, "You know what? I think these moderates are right. Take a win. Right. Why? Why not move?" the budget bill that's a bipartisan bill and just and chalk that one up and have Joe Biden sign it, you know, and then let's fight over what is left. And in effect, Nancy Pelosi made a deal with them. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, I, I am not surprised that things sort of worked out in favor of Nancy Pelosi just by virtue of the fact that she's been doing this a long time, very savvy about how to, how to uh, right. make these things happen in the way that she hopes to have them happen. I mean, I, I do understand why there are a lot of Democrats, and I think particularly Democrats who are relatively new to the caucus, like Ocasio-Cortez and, like, and like some of, you know, like Cory Bush and, and folks like that, who are very wary of not striking while the iron is hot. You know, it's extremely easy, as you and I well know from having spent some time watching Washington, it's very easy for things to just wither away if you don't get them done when you need to get them done and or... You know, Democrats are, should still remember what happened, and uh, you know, with the death of Ted Kennedy, and then all of a sudden you have Scott Brown in the Senate, and you know, the, the, the Affordable Care Act starts going sideways. Right? Things can change very quickly on a lot in a lot of different ways. The, the House majority is razor thin. You know, I mean, if you include uh, Kamala Harris in the Senate vote totals, the margin is actually closer in the House between Democrats and Republicans than it is, than it is in the Senate. I mean, that's how narrow it is in the House. Uh, you know, a lot of things can go wrong really quickly, and I think that's part of the urgency here as well. It's also, to me, it's always been not believable that Democrats, with as at least maybe brief time that they have 
the most marginal control of both the House and the Senate are going to kill Joe Biden's number one priorities. It never made sense to me. And I think, in effect, uh, Nancy Pelosi is not going to let that happen. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. You know, and I think at the end of the day, too, the politics of this really aren't that bad. I mean, I think that every one of these moderate Democrats who's in a relatively close district, which isn't all of them, something like four or five of them are really actually you know, close districts, uh, they're going to get slammed either way on, yeah. on being too progressive. So, you know, you, you know if, you, if, that, if you're going just from a straight political calculus, why not have, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for your district that you can also point to and say, well, I helped bring you this. I mean, Republicans were running on, you know, after the COVID relief package that they opposed, Republicans were still out there saying, hey, I helped bring this money to the district. You know, why not have them? Why not? Why wouldn't you as a Democrat seize the opportunity to do that yourself? Do you think that this is a problem of with Democrats tending to eat their own, unlike Republicans who kind of they may not like it, but they, but they all sing out of the same songbook, whereas uh, Democrats sometimes seem to go out of their way, right, right, to disagree. This is one of the ongoing fascinating things to me about American politics is that you have this incredibly uh, homogenous group on the political right you know, culturally homogenous in many ways, certainly demographically homogenous. And then you have the left, which incorporates, you know, we saw this in the, in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election and these fights between these Midwestern white moderates and, you know, folks like Ocasio-Cortez who represent demographically diverse and, you know, in much more liberal places fighting over things like police funding, right? There are these internal tensions to the Democratic Party, which simply don't exist in the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party is less diverse currently than the Democratic Party was in 1996, right? So mm -hmm. you just don't have this same sort of infighting because you don't, you have generally everyone in agreement. You know, at this point, they really, most of them are primarily uh, uh, rural um, uh, districts. They have a lot of rural voters that are that they represent. Uh, you have obviously Senate control in that in the uh, is really dependent on the fact that Republicans hold these rural states where they get two senators. I mean, there are all these ways in which there is very little incentive for Republicans to fight one another in in contrast to what's happening on the left. And I think it's just sort of a natural part of what the Democratic Party looks like. I'm curious about the division among Democrats, which seems to be perennial, right? Even when they're in charge, they won't have internal fights. And the Republicans trying to show, and for the most part, do succeed in a show of unity. Does that mean that the Republicans who, I'm thinking of a Republican like Bill Kristol, I'm thinking of the Republicans in the uh, Lincoln Project, who are trying to say, no, today's Trump Republican Party is not the real Republican Party. Are they gone? I mean, is that history? Are they ever going to come back? Or have, have the Trumpers taken over the Republican Party forever? How do you read it? It's a, it's a great question. I'm actually working on a book right now that's coming out next year. Uh -huh. it, looks, it looks in part at what happens after, you know, over the course of the next decade or so in American politics. Um, so this is very fresh on my mind. And I think the short answer is we, we simply don't know. I mean, it was this weird uh, allegiance that existed for the Trump administration between folks like Bill Kristol. You know, I keep thinking Stuart Stevens was this longtime Republican activist, helped elect George W. Bush, worked for his yeah. father, worked for Mitt Romney, right? And now it's just like, sees the entire parties anathema, you know, wrote yeah. a book, wrote a book literally called It Was All a Lie, right? You know, and I, he's never going to be a Republican again. That's pretty obvious. And I think these folks will just sort of 
be on their in their own domain for the rest of their careers and just sort of these former Republicans who are standing on the outside. The real question is what happens to the party broadly, how demographics affect uh, the party broadly over the course of the next, you know, I mean, the, as I talk to experts, what I hear over and over and over again is the next four to six years are just critical for the future of American democracy. And, you know, once we get past that point, assuming that everything remains as it is, then, you know, Maybe there's a shift in the Republican Party that is a function of the changing demography in the United States in part, but we got to get to that point first, and that's the real question. Yeah, and I, I recently interviewed Bill Crystal here on the podcast, and, and Bill made one of the points he's really worried because uh, the people, basically, as he sees it, are willing to accept almost anything today, right? You've got a president who still doesn't accept the results of the last election. Right. You have members of Congress— um, who think that January 6th was nothing but a, the, like, except a, a typical tourist day, right? Um, uh, who think that uh, the people who stormed the Capitol and trashed the Capitol on January 6th, they call them patriots. They're trying to get them out of jail. They think they're being abused. Uh, Republicans who voted against giving Capitol Police um, a Medal of Honor you know, for their role on January 6th. This is stuff that normally Republicans would never have let alone the American people, would never have put up with or tolerated. So. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, and then you couple that with these efforts, these very fervent and very direct efforts to try and reshape how voting is done in, in various states, particularly states right. where there have been demographic changes. And look, you know, I keep trying to find a silver lining. I keep trying to find a way to assuage my own concerns, and I just can't, you know? It's just like, it's this is a very dangerous time. And, and I, I hate that even articulate that loud because it makes it feel more real, but it is. And you know, I keep hearing everyone I speak to, that's, that's what they say, and, and I, I don't know what things look like in a day. Well, let me just ask you this. When you find the silver lining, give me a call. We'll get back together <laughs> right. again. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll be a little more hopeful, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll put it together. I, I will absolutely do that, and I hope I get to make that call. Philip Bump, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for your good work. Love reading you all the time, and you're right on point. Thanks, sir. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the week. This is a big week. Uh, August 31, the deadline, uh, Joe Biden is set for getting all Americans and all our friends out of Afghanistan. We'll see how that goes and talk about that and a whole lot more on our roundtable this Friday. We'll see you then. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.